prepared to join. There's one, otherwise, I hope, um, well, standing room is a good indication that there's strong interest in pensions. Um, now, uh, in this room, a lot of very short-term macroeconomic and financial uh, issues have been discussed. Um, pensions is a field where um, things are fairly predictable, uh, right? Um, there is little uncertainty in demographic and uh, demographic developments and fiscal um, uh, implications of that. Um, and uh, just glance through the last uh, aging report prepared by the EU, and uh, again, of course, that predicted that um, sharp deterioration in dependency ratios. Um, so um, pension funds are one element that creates a more balanced um, pension and retirement provision. And uh, one side benefit, of course, is seen in uh, financial integration or financial development of capital markets. Um, Central Europe, the new member states in particular, saw that as an instrument in, in fostering their capital markets. But uh, clearly, this is just uh, a side benefit uh, if and when uh, the pension system is sustainable. So now, with low interest rates and uh, bit of a disillusionment about how the industry works. Uh, we've seen in many countries a retrenchment from funded pension systems, importantly in Eastern Europe. Um, but in all this, we now have a proposal by the EU Commission, and um, that creates a new pension product um, that shall be portable and mobile across all EU financial markets within the Capital Markets Union. So that was the motivation for our discussion today. Um, and I'm really pleased to have the panel here with um, Amlan Roy, um, whom I know from previous uh, roles he had in the City of London. He's now a Chief Retirement Strategist with um, State Street Global, Global Advisors. Um, but previously spent many years uh, as an academic in the field of demographics and um, pensions finance. Um, then uh, we have uh, Steve Ryan uh, from uh, DG FISMA, uh, who is in the unit for insurance and pensions, uh, which of course was the main um, uh, creator of that new pensions product. Um, but uh, Steve also previously worked in uh, various roles around financial services and previously in DG competition. And then I'm um, very pleased to also have uh, Giselle um, van, van, van Wollenhoven, I'm sorry, <laughs> um, and um, who heads the, um, uh, the unit for pensions in the Dutch National Bank. Um, of course, uh, the Netherlands being um, a key uh, promoter and environment for uh, occupational pension funds, uh, but Giselle uh, previously also worked as an actuary and uh, in ING group, uh, so also some combines some banking and um, industry experience. And then uh, last but not least, we have uh, Marina uh, Monaco from the uh, European Trade Union Congress, uh, where she um, uh, follows the, the pensions and social policy field. Um, so very pleased to have you all here. And um, the uh, 
order of presentations is that Amlan will give us a bit of context. Uh, we then hear about the um, EU proposal, um, have a comment from the Dutch perspective, and then from Marina. Yeah? Okay, let me hand over to Amlan. So please bear with me, I apologize. Um, and I'm going to challenge some of what we know on macroeconomics and claim, uh, as a researcher, I apologize for that, for being direct. I will claim models that we are using in insurance, pensions, and asset allocation are outdated and outmoded. This is just based on my personal view of advising governments around 70 countries on pensions. So the first thing that I'm going to highlight is based on demographics. The biggest management guru and the biggest pension guru in 2000 uh, writing a book. His name is Peter Drucker. In 1976, he said GM Chrysler Ford will go bankrupt in a book called Pensions Revolution. We call him the guru of all pensions. He said demographics is the single most important factor we do not pay attention to, but when we do pay attention, we miss the point. So I recast demographics by saying all of us misinterpret and misdirect demographics. Demographics is not only about age. It comes from demos, which is people, and grapos, which is characteristics. Look at the characteristics of these three gentlemen here, this lady, this lady, there. We are not the same even if you're the same age. Everyone in this room, from the time we are born till the date we die, we are consumers. There are seven point five five billion consumers today in the world. And we are also workers. Workers make the GDP and consumers consume the GDP. If you consider people the same age, and this is where macroeconomics that I taught across three continents that many of you press F9 on when you build your models, whether it be PEP or asset allocation models in the city of London, at APG or at GPIF, are also flawed because we assume homogeneity. People of the same age may be very different. Women are very different than men. Immigrants are very different than natives. People who went to private school are different than public school. Experimental economics and behavioral finance therefore tells us we need to focus on consumers and workers. And if you look at consumers and workers, they affect income statement and balance sheets for individuals, households, corporates, and nations. My next 10 minutes is just going to be spent on telling you that consumers are very important, and let's see. We believe we are so smart, so I'm showing you a mistake every insurance company, every macro professor, every actuary in the world made. And a Dutch health association head pointed this out to me in 2007. And I then implemented it and showed it around the world. The fastest growing age group in the world today is 80 plus. They've grown by 400% over 1970 to 2015. Sorry. They've grown by 400% over 1970 to 2015. In Japan, they've grown by about eightfold from 1% to 8%. And that is one of the single biggest reasons I show the Bank of Japan and Ministry of Finance for their downgrade because when in 1970 they had 1% 80 plus population, their debt to GDP was 46%. Today, when 8% is the 80-plus population, their debt to GDP is 265%. What did we get wrong? We classified all retirees in one homogeneous class from 65 till the date we die. 
the 80 plus cost the Dutch government 79% more than a 65 year old. In Switzerland, 93% more. In US, more than double. So the blunder we all made is put all retirees in one homogeneous cost, and this is something which is getting us to make mistakes because in Singapore, the 80 plus population has grown by 1972% over 45 years. Hong Kong is the oldest country in the world. Please note, not Japan. I show the government of Japan. It's 30% richer than Japan, and the median life uh, is roughly 0.3 years higher, and conditional life expectancy is higher too. So we need to pay attention to the fact that the very old are growing fastest, they're very expensive, and they are bringing lot of our public finances under big strains. The next point I make is we tend to think of rich countries all being similar. But please note, this is quite wrong. If you think of rich countries as being similar, here I'm showing you in Italy, in Spain, in Germany, you have populations which are decreasing, consumers which are decreasing. Here, negative 0.2, negative 0.1, negative 0.2. Whereas in UK, in France, in Netherlands, consumers and populations are increasing. Fertility rates are very different. Look at UK, look at France, look at Netherlands. They've slightly increased. But in contrast, while there has been some increase, Italy, Spain, Germany are very different. Life expectancy at birth, very, very different across these countries. And I would urge you to look at something which actuaries and economists and pension funds get wrong, which is this is not the best metric to use. The best metric to use is conditional life expectancy at 60, 65, 70, 75. And also look at old age dependency ratio. UK is 36, Italy is 48, Netherlands is 40. Netherlands is very different than Italy. And in a paper that we wrote in 2012 that the ECB uses, we use this as a challenge for why Maastricht and other things that we expect to be homogeneous need to be changed to adapt to this. So this is a document we wrote in 2000. 47 countries, starting with Germany and France, cited it for changing retirement ages. Very quick points are old people, we should not have mandatory retirement ages because the retirement age of 65 was determined by Bismarck in 1892 when life expectancy was only 46. Most people didn't live till 65. Today, when we are living into the 80s, abolish mandatory retirement ages, close gender gaps. We talk a lot about pensions, but look at this room around you. The world is 50% women. More university graduates in Europe are women, yet we don't give them equal work opportunities. And we say we don't have enough people, uh, young people, to do jobs. So it's radical. We need to close the gender gaps to better utilize female work potential, something we show in countries like Japan, China, et cetera. Im immigration policies. We've written papers on immigration showing just during the Brexit time that immigration and also during the asylum migration series that Immigration is very different in France, Germany, Italy, and I looked at 400 years of immigration. So my argument is I fail every country on immigration in uh, Europe because only two countries on immigration barely pass my test. They're called Canada and, um, uh, Canada and Australia. They ask the right questions. Why do we need immigrants? What skills? For how long? What's the cost? What's the benefit? If we don't ask those kind of questions ex ante, we are being unfair both to the immigrants as well as to the natives. Look, what we said in 2000 is happening. No one's holding a gun to the head. Turkey, Iceland, Switzerland, uh, Mexico, Korea, and lots of places, effective retirement age is higher than official, particularly when you also look at women. It's only in the countries here, Italy, Belgium, 
Spain, Netherlands, where people are lazy and they're getting retired much earlier than they expected to, and they're living much longer. This puts strains on the younger generations, and we are being unfair to the younger generations. Please note another point that no one will point out to you, because if you're not a finance professor, you've not looked at it. And finance professors all got it wrong earlier, including people like us. We said, don't look at the 65 to 74-year-olds when you're looking at investments. Look at people 55 to 64. Today, the richest age group in the G10 is 65 to 74-year-olds, richest age group. And that is something that we never paid attention to. They partook of a quadruple bonus. GDP per capita growth went up, equities went up, bonds went up, real estate went up. 1981 to 2000 were the two best decades in 200 years of asset returns. Look here how unfair we are towards women. We pay women 40% less in France, 50% less in Germany, and in UK, uh, <coughs> something like 90% lower. And in Netherlands, um, those numbers, uh, I think, are uh, nearly half. Okay, so we really need to kind of check these numbers and make sure that we are closer to the Nordics where the gap is only 10-15% and the gap in gender labor force participation is 4-5%. The next slide I'm showing you is men and women tend to drop off work very quickly in the 50s, yet they are quite healthy till the 60s and 70s. They should continue working and you can see that Retiring at 45, 54, or dropping off the labor force puts inordinate strains on public finances. So this is a paper where, where I said that we need to look at five generations of retirees. So I'm going to give you an example from Germany. There's a 91-year-old in Munich who's got a 67-year-old son in Stuttgart, who's got a 45-year-old woman and uh, daughter in Mannheim, who's got 22-year-old and one-year-old twins. Five generations exist, yet we are pressing F9 on three generation models which were developed in the 50s and 60s. This is happening in Mexico, it's happening in Japan, it's happening also in Costa Rica. I have good and bad news. The good news is European Commission is great because it understands one thing. You cannot solve the pensions problem of the world just by itself. You need policy changes in labor, education, health, pensions, and social benefits. So if anyone thinks you can solve the pensions problem just by itself, please read this paper because I assure you, you cannot solve the pensions problem. You need to ensure consumers, workers, and others do the right things. Asset managers, pension funds, I'm a finance as well as a macro professor, we need to not use old models of asset allocation like Markowitz, Sharp, et cetera, which were based just on two asset classes, public equities, government bonds, and cash. Today, real estate, infrastructure, commodities, uh, hedge funds, private equity, all those asset classes need to be included in the menu, and we need significant change in thinking and mindset. This is an ECB model, and I popularize it around the world because it's one of the easiest and most brilliant models to understand growth. Growth around 71 countries that I look at is going down, and growth comes from three parts, working age population growth, labor productivity, and labor utilization. I'm showing you for Germany roughly 37 years of growth and for France 37 years of growth too. And GDP growth rate has come down everywhere. The basic reason for that is labor productivity growth in the middle. Who has the highest labor productivity growth in this room? Not me or anyone older than me. It's a 23, 24-year-old person. So to increase labor productivity growth, whether it's in China, US, Canada, or last week in Switzerland, I would say hire more young people and hire more women. That's very simple. Now I come to trade. 
All these countries are very different in terms. This is the mother equation of macroeconomics, consumption plus investment plus government expenditures and net imports. UK is 65% consumption to GDP, but Belgium is 51. Netherlands is 45. Germany is 54. We don't pay enough attention to it, but Angela Merkel in Germany gets this right when she says one of the big problems for Germany is their openness measure is 86%, whereas the US openness measure is only 30%. Openness is exports plus imports by GDP. Netherlands is 154%, Belgium is 164%. In a global economy, when there's a global shock, we are all interconnected, open economies will suffer more, but equally, when there's a global boom, they will be uh, growing also more. Then I show you why Europe is unsustainable in its current form. I, I called Greece in 2006, no one believed me, at the CFA Institute as well as at the European Commission. But I'm telling you now that no country in Europe has money beyond 10, 15 years to pay for pensions, healthcare, long-term care, unless young people coming out of University of Mannheim or University of Tilburg or uh, the Polytechnics come and say, we are, uh, or LSE come and say, we are willing to pay 70, 80% marginal taxes as soon as we graduate from university. 20% plus of GDP is unsustainable and it's expected to grow. Today, if you pay 100 euros, do you know that old age, sickness, healthcare, and disability takes away roughly 83%? So we are, pardon my friends, screwing the younger generations at the expense of making these payments to my generation and older. We need to redress the balance and make it fairer towards younger people. Look at the pension indicators. Again, some of these pension indicators for Italy, for Netherlands, etc., indicate very, very onerous, big promises. We need to cut down some of the promises for middle class uh, people and civil servants if they're working for APG, for instance, but I don't think you can do it for MN services because the human capital at 65 is far more rigid and they have more physical capital. Immigration, look how different this is. I don't want to shame the Germans, but if I were to ask you, when did Germany's population start decreasing? Not a single German answers this right, but as a data geek, I show it to you, it's 1973. The dark blue bars are births minus deaths. They go negative in Germany from 1973. Only immigration kept it positive. Look at Italy's immigration. It's going negative only from 2000 onwards. France, as well as uh, other countries like UK, US, Spain, do take in immigrants, but they've still not gone negative. So we need to understand immigration in the context of what skills we need, when are births going to be greater than deaths, what's the cost, what's the benefit. Now, uh, it's not just about pensions. We need to look at quality of life, gender gap, corruption, and sustainability. And I end by telling you something that Modigliani, Modigliani is the most modest man I've met in my life. He created defined contribution pension plans in US. And on his deathbed, he wrote a book, Rethinking Pension Reform, saying defined contribution is not the solution to the world. Hybrid pension plans, like in Netherlands, like in the Nordics, and in other world, will be better. So in Canada, as well as in Japan, you still have more than 90% in defined benefit. I look forward to a world where we can combine both and learn from all of us. Thank you very much for your time. Hey, thank you. Uh, so, some uncomfortable truths about uh, the cost of aging, but that certainly uh, got us all fired up. Uh, so, can I hand over to Stephen? Sure. Thank you very much. And <clears throat> if you don't mind, I will I will sit uh, to give the presentation rather than uh, rather than stand. Um, 
so now from the, 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 the big uh, macro picture, we are kind of zooming into one uh, micro element, which is we fully, we fully admit one uh, small brick in the wall of the, uh, the uh, policy approaches to, to deal with this demographic challenge, and that is the uh, pan-European personal pension, uh, which the European Commission proposed in the middle of 2017, and it's currently being discussed uh, in, the, in the Council uh, and the Parliament. Um, of course, this is not the big solution to demographics. This can only work in conjunction with a wide range of uh, other measures, as, as, as Amlan Roy just, uh, just mentioned, including broad social measures on gender and immigration and, and, and many, many other things. Um, so a, a few broad remarks about the PEP just to, just to uh, set the general uh, picture. Uh, the, the PEP is at the interface of uh, pensions policy, uh, uh, retirement policy, and the capital market union initiative, uh, which means that it is equally about providing uh, a solution or a partial solution to plug the pensions gap and also providing uh, new sources of saving and investment in Europe, which is necessary for growth. So we try to, uh, we try to uh, kill two birds with one stone, uh, because uh, savings rates uh, do need to rise, but savings rates are feeding into investment, and we have also uh, an investment uh, gap in Europe. That's the first uh, general remark. The second uh, general remark is that uh, this proposal of the Commission is meant to be pan-European. Uh, that's where uh, the uh, EU has uh, some added value. Uh, there are, of course, um, uh, private pensions in uh, many member states already, but uh, not all member states. And in fact, uh, there, are only, um, there are only five member states uh, where um, the percentage of the population holding a personal pension is over 15%. Uh, that's uh, Germany, Spain, Sweden, Austria, and Slovenia. So there is big, big potential in most member states for um, uh, personal pensions to uh, develop at national level. But, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking here about a European product. So it's very, very important from the Commission's point of view that it should be possible to sell it cross-border and for those uh, citizens who are mobile and moving around between member states, it's important that uh, there should be a portability aspect too. So we are not trying to compete with uh, existing national models, but uh, develop something which has some added value uh, at the European level. So another uh, general remark is that uh, we wanted to develop a product which is accessible for a wide range of uh, providers. Um, there are, of course, uh, insurers who have experience uh, in the field of pensions. There are um, occupational pension funds, uh, which are experienced in the occupational domain, but not uh, the personal domain, necessarily. And there are, of course, uh, asset managers who are keen to move into this area. So we don't want to show any favoritism or preference to any particular sector. We want to develop something which is accessible to uh, different uh, sectors. So um, bearing in mind those general uh, objectives, we developed a proposal uh, that we put forward in the middle of last year. And 
I'm sure many people uh, will react to the proposal by saying, well, this is, this is super ambitious. This is a very, very uh, ambitious and detailed proposal. Of course, that's what the Commission usually does in its uh, legislative practice, knowing that uh, in the legislative process in the Council and the Parliament, there is a tendency to dilution rather than uh, addition. So the Commission tends to come forward with very strong, ambitious proposals. And this is, this is no exception uh, to that. Uh, but the devil is in the detail. And uh, in fact, there is a council working group taking place today uh, discussing the detail. Uh, the, uh, the Economic and Finance Committee of the European Parliament had a discussion about it uh, just, uh, just last week, uh, discussing all of these uh, details. So let's uh, just focus in on some of the... Uh, some of the details that will have to be sorted, that will have to be uh, fixed if, if this uh, proposal is going to be uh, a success. And the, the, the first of these areas is uh, our favorite uh, three-letter word ending in X, uh, namely tax, of course. I'm sure that's the first word everybody thought of. Um, what are we going to do about taxation differences? Because the uh, take-up of personal pensions in many member states is very closely linked to uh, tax uh, incentives. And the Commission has a competence for tax, but the, the difference is that um, tax proposals by the Commission uh, have to uh, get the unanimity of member states in order to be uh, adopted, whereas single market proposals can be adopted uh, on a qualified majority. So uh, what we did was we made the uh, proposal on the um, the uh, product characteristics of PEP uh, as, as a single market proposal, and then we made a separate recommendation on tax measures. So we're not trying to legislate the tax. Uh, we made a recommendation uh, that uh, member states uh, should, uh, once the PEP is, uh, of course, in force, uh, accord it a non-discriminatory tax uh, uh, treatment with regard to uh, domestic uh, products, and of course, uh, member states uh, will uh, hopefully do that, but of course they will, uh, they will no doubt uh, raise points about what is a comparable product, uh, etc. But we, we dealt with the, the tax aspect uh, for the time being via a recommendation, not via legislation. Okay, and another, another uh, element is what we call the uh, default option. So the, the, the default option is the, um, the investment plan that the uh, investor will uh, receive who doesn't express a preference for any particular other plan. Uh, you can have uh, all providers will be obliged to provide uh, the uh, uh, default option. You can also provide uh, an aggressive option and a more uh, safe option if you wish, uh, but the default option is obligatory. And one of the key issues here is whether the uh, default option should be uh, in inverted commas guaranteed, whether there should be any kind of a guarantee, should it be uh, a defined benefit, defined contribution, or a hybrid option. And of course, the answer to this question, uh, to some extent, uh, determines what kind of providers can, can offer uh, this product. And what, what the Commission proposed in its proposal is that the, um, the uh, default option should have uh, capital protection, uh, but which can be uh, provided uh, through risk mitigation measures uh, such as life cycling 
and at a later stage there will be more detailed implementing rules to say what kind of uh, what kind of uh, uh, risk mitigation measures would be uh, acceptable. So th this this clearly falls short of a legal uh, guarantee. Uh, and there are some voices in, in the Council and the Parliament which say that uh, a legal guarantee would be preferable. Uh, that's not what the Commission proposal says. But this debate, this debate is a very active, uh, ongoing uh, debate. Um, another element that I'd like to focus on is the uh, the cross-border portability. Now, this is this is this is um, one of the most tricky subjects. So, let's say, for example, you have. Uh, somebody living in uh, Germany who opens a PEP with a German uh, provider and then goes to live in a different, live and work in a different uh, member state. It can be any member state. Now, because of national uh, um, employment and social rules, uh, the terms and conditions will be uh, different, so there has to be a different national compartment. So uh, the, uh, the person in question would continue contributing in a different member state, and the, very importantly, the investments can be managed centrally. There can be central management of the investment, but legally it would be carved out into a separate compartment subject to separate uh, um, uh, employment and social rules, and the most important of, of these rules is, of course, the uh, legal retirement age when you can start to decumulate. So, of course, there is the, uh, the possibility of ending up with uh, a number of different compartments which have different retirement ages attached to them. That's uh, inevitable without uh, harmonization of labor and social rules. But one of the key debates in the Council and the Parliament is whether it should be obligatory for the providers to offer compartments in all member states. Of course, uh, that would probably re require linking up and cooperation between, between, between PEP providers. We wouldn't expect any but the, mo the biggest uh, to, to provide themselves a compartment in all member states. Uh, next uh, key issue to be decided, what we call decumulation, the payout phase. Should decumulation be uh, allowed in any form? Uh, or should it be obligatory, uh, for example, in uh, annuities? Now, the, uh, the Commission uh, proposal does not impose a particular uh, form of decumulation, but there are voices who say that uh, for the default option at least, there should be a certain percentage, uh, not 100%, not 50%, but a certain percentage which is obligatory in annuities uh, to, uh, to prevent uh, people simply cashing in, of course, their, their fund and spending it on something frivolous uh, or something inappropriate. Um, but of course, if you impose annuities, that uh, really uh, means that there is a competitive advantage to the uh, insurance sector in providing, in providing this uh, product. Um, yes, uh, another area for decision, uh, should really the PEP be open to all, uh, all uh, types of provider? Should some providers be excluded? There are some uh, stakeholders who think that it's really not appropriate for occupational pension funds to provide this product. The Commission proposal allows that, uh, but uh, that is, a, that is a, an ongoing uh, debate. 
With regard to the asset managers, it's not a question of formally excluding or including, but as I already said, how you define the product characteristics, the obligatory product characteristics, determines how easy it is for that sector to, to offer this product. And, and, and the final area that I, that I will focus on is the, the, uh, the proposed uh, role of um, AOPA, the European uh, Insurance and Occupational Pensions Authority, for, for validating the PEP label. Because, of course, um, you can, of course, have a domestic product which, uh, by chance, uh, meets all of the characteristics of a PEP, uh, but if you want to market it on a cross-border basis as a PEP, uh, somebody has to validate that it, that it meets all those uh, criteria, uh, and the Commission uh, has proposed to give that role to AOPA. Uh, we think that's uh, appropriate. There should be a central European management of, of the label. The, the, the product can exist. You can have domestic products which by chance meet all of the PEP characteristics, but there is no desire to market them cross-border, so nobody applies for the PEP uh, label. But if you do want to apply for the PEP label, uh, we think that uh, a central European management of that label uh, should be, should be uh, given. So uh, there you have it, I've, 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 I've given you the general picture of what we're trying to do and some of the issues of detail, and you can't avoid the detail, the devil is always in the detail. Now we're absolutely convinced uh, that uh, the Council and the Parliament will, in the course of the coming months or, or maximum one year before the uh, European Parliament breaks up for elections next year, they will approve this PEP proposal. Uh, no doubt uh, there will be uh, some changes from the Commission proposal. Uh, that's absolutely normal. Uh, but we do uh, hope that they will uh, uh, adopt a PEP proposal which is uh, attractive to providers because we know some uh, providers are, are impatient to offer this product. So in order to enable the first PEPs to be actually put on the marketplace for, for European uh, savers and European consumers before the end of uh, 2019. And we're, uh, we're convinced that that will happen. Thank you. Okay. Thanks so much, Stephen. Now, so for reaction on this proposal, let's turn to uh, Gisela with a perspective from what will be, what, 40% of the defined uh, contribution market in the EU 26. Seven. Yes. yes, thank you. Yeah. If you have the clicker for me, that would be nice. Then uh, yeah. I can go through the slides. Um, yes, and, and I guess my story combines a little bit the, some of the remarks that Amlan made together with how the PEP product might fit into a, uh, well, let's call it a successful pension scheme. Um, if you look at a successful pension scheme, then of course you have to ask yourself what is actually the aim of having an occupational pension scheme. And in my view, uh, the aim is to achieve uh, consumption smoothing over time. So a sufficient, sufficiently high replacement ratio um, at retirement. Uh, therefore, a pension system needs to produce sufficiently high lifelong income stream with a wide coverage. So also the participation rate, therefore, is very important in a successful scheme. Well, I don't think we cannot leave that to the market without any government in intervention. Uh, because there are market failures, um, market failures like adverse selection. People um, who think they will have a long life, of course, would like to have their longevity risk insured. But if you don't think so, you will not take advantage of this, but then it won't work. Um, people usually suffer from myopia, 
Yes, they don't, they, they'd rather spend their, time, their money today than save it for later. Um, so people will not save enough uh, by themselves sufficiently. Uh, so the uh, replacement ratio, therefore, is in, in, in danger. And the third uh, element is asymmetric information. Uh, people usually do not have enough information and knowledge about pensions, nor do they have, usually have interest in pensions. Uh, and uh, the complexity of pension products is uh, partly due to that, but also lack of transparency might be a cause there. In the Netherlands, pension regulation uh, is aimed to address these market failures. So we have a mandatory participation in the second pillar um, if the employer offers a, a scheme. The second thing is that we have tax incentives for pension savings. And the third element is that we have supervision, especially for the asymmetric information area. Well, where does it lead to? If you see the pension regulation in the Netherlands has contributed to a relatively large second pillar. Roughly 90% of all employees in the Netherlands face mandatory pension savings. This number is, by the way, slightly decreasing due to the high number of self-employed people, which is a, an area which is growing in the Netherlands. And they usually don't have a mandatory uh, pension product, but still 90% is a very high number. The pension assets in the Netherlands mount up to 1,300 billion euros, which is roughly about 35% of the second pillar assets in the euro area. The net replacement rate, which was also referred to today, if you combine the first and the second pillar in the Netherlands, is about 100%. So if you talk about smoothing of your consumption, this is uh, achieved in the system in the Netherlands. Um, so this is what the system in the Netherlands leads to in terms of, uh, of numbers. And I think it's good also referring to Amland's story. If you see the first and the second pillar in the Netherlands, the first pillar is a pay-as-you-go system, and the second pillar, which then is very large in the Netherlands, uh, is, is capital-based. Well, if you then look at the PEP product and you combine those figures, I think it's a difficult business case for the Dutch market. Um, we have high mandatory savings, though there is no direct need for uh, extra savings. There is also a third pillar in the Netherlands, which, uh, which has ample competition, so it's a well-developed market. It is also tax-incentivized, although that is very limited. Um, and the third part is, if you look at those tax incentives, then it's still unclear how the PEP product would look like. So for the Netherlands, I think um, it might not be uh, the most logical product. However, there are very large pension, in, pension institutions in the Netherlands. So from a competition base, they might be very interested in offering products um, to, um, to other countries. So there is a chance uh, for pension providers from the Netherlands. Although from a legal perspective, there are very, very different views on which parties are actually allowed to offer such products. Then if you look at the third um, pillar regulation in the Netherlands, um, you see that there's a compulsory annuity at the end. So in the, in the Netherlands, from a fiscal basis, uh, the annuity is 100% at, at payout. Um, the tax incentives are there, which uh, help to address the myopia I referred to earlier, and of course there's supervision. If we see about PEP regulation, there are still some question marks. And I think those question marks are actually areas which might uh, offer support for promoting the PEP product better and therefore also to achieve um, the, uh, the um, higher pension ratio for people. 
So I'm very uh, much looking forward to how the PEP regulation would look like and whether this would address those uh, issues I mentioned. Thank you very much. Okay, Marina. I'm afraid I'm going to give a, um, a hint about uh, a, a slightly different context uh, from the one which has been exposed so far, where actually uh, uh, we, the, the reference is much more often to workers rather than to consumers, to uh, people who have spent life at work, uh, in many cases uh, struggling about a decent level of incomes, both uh, at uh, wage and pension income levels. Um, and uh, um, a context in which uh, uh, labor mobility is something which should support people in uh, getting a job, getting a decent salary, and getting a, a decent uh, a pension income in spite of uh, uh, the, um, the mobility character <laughs> as such. In this context, uh, which is uh, actually quite uh, under the light at the moment, the European Commission has just provided uh, a very a series of uh, very interesting interventions which can be reassumed under the label of uh, European Pillar of Social Rights. Uh, uh, and the European Commission has also launched a series of concrete initiatives uh, recommending uh, that uh, pension issues and social security issues have to be addressed for a wide rate of uh, workers uh, who do not have actually access uh, to social security which is, by the way, a right, as for many member states' constitutions, uh, well, they're uh, 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 proposing PEP as, uh, presenting PEP more of a, as a solution to the uh, pension legacy gap than, rather than as a financial instrument is, in our view, a little bit misleading. On the one hand, uh, we have always uh, uh, we have worked and we have assessed in a series of uh, with a series of evidences uh, uh, the goodness of uh, a collective and a solidarity approach. Whereas when we talk about complementary uh, schemes uh, or voluntary schemes, uh, there must be something compulsory and guaranteed, which is presupposed. Uh, in, uh, in times where uh, uh, um, there is a serious uh, uh, long-term unemployment uh, and a serious uh, 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 issue with uh, wage levels, um, mobilizing uh, private savings uh, with a product which is unclear in its security and long-term risk uh, 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 impact is something which may put under risk the future pension income of a huge rate of population where uh, collective pensions and even state pensions are not particularly uh, uh, well-developed. Eastern countries uh, basically lack of uh, collective and strong systems. But nonetheless, uh, uh, 
the financial products which are supposed to, pro to uh, provide pensions should become uh, 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 the solution for, uh, 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 for workers in those areas. Um, the risk that we see is basically um, something which has to do with the uh, attractiveness for these pension products, both in a collective and in individual view. Why should they be uh, attractive for workers? Why should workers invest in the PEP and not in uh, the, the existing pension products, although in the even if they are individual. Is it for a, a differential in costs? And then where is uh, this differential in costs realized? Is there a higher or lower risk? Uh, are the same conditions provided? Um, what are the, the necessary information and uh, um, guarantees which some have to provide in providing a pension product and some others don't? Uh, is there a possibility of low shopping? One of the main, uh, uh, let's say, advertising, advertising arguments of the PEP is the pan-European dimension. But actually, at the moment, uh, uh, the creation of the compartments uh, in each and single member state seems to be a little bit complex to put in place, which means that providers will have a little difficulty in providing the worker a worker the actual advantage in contributing from different member states. So the impression might be that in, within the union, the perspective of the worker who goes around and needs to accumulate from different member states is not the privileged one. The risk is that we want to have a, a, the possibility, we want to use the union as a a market, which is fine, unless we preserve the workers from the risk of uh, inequalities, of disadvantages when they move from a place to another, and of the different legislations which are still uh, uh, in, the in the exclusive competence of member states, although uh, certain attempts to, uh, of harmonization uh, but which can, are still exposed in certain cases to uh, uh, possibilities of low shopping. And this is a risk for workers. Okay. Thank you. Okay, so uh, before opening is up to questions, uh, is there an immediate reaction from either Stephen <laughs> or Amlan with the two main presentations? A reaction to the, do you think the PEP could be sold to the uh, Dutch, Dutch funds? Of course, the, 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 some, some, some national uh, pensions markets are already very well supplied. That is not the case in all member states. There are many member states, in particular on the eastern side of Europe, where there is very heavy dependency on uh, Pillar 1 state pensions, which, uh, as Amlan said, are, are not sustainable in the long term. So there is an urgent need there for the development of more funded pensions. That could be Pillar 2, that could be Pillar 3. It, it doesn't matter, but there's an there's a urgent necessity 
to uh, to uh, uh, to develop more funded pensions uh, across Europe. I mean, the Netherlands is a particularly well-supplied uh, uh, market, but not every member state is like that. And of course, the PEP doesn't exist yet. I hope it will exist next year. And the final details of the product characteristics remain to be to be uh, to be uh, to be determined. But I'm sure that, uh, and it is a complex product. That's inevitable for a pan-European product. But we're sure that many of the providers will have the experience to uh, to overcome that and, and provide something uh, which is uh, has added value. I think all over the world we are short of savings. So I'm going to give you a provocative question which applies to every single person. Let's say Alexis Amlan retired at 65. Simple question. And Gisela has the best mortality model. She says, you'll die when you're 85. How much money do I need for next 20 years of retirement? Very simple question. 20 years of post-retirement, I'm retiring today. How much money do I need? I've asked it at more than 400 conferences. It's not easy. Healthcare costs, inflation, taxes, where I retire, what's my family condition? An ex-Bank of Japan governor, age 91, just married a 53-year-old. Living condition very different than the previous one who's aged 87. I retire in DeKalb, Illinois, uh, uh, which is 300 miles from Chicago. $300,000 lost me about 40% more. There are lots of questions that we don't understand. But the great thing, I think, coming from PEP and the Dutch system that we need to realize is we all need to save more. And because of that uncertainty, no one can predict a lot of these things. And if we have to live healthily, we need to save more. So things like PEP and things like what uh, Marina talked about, more transparency to educate people who are young workers. I care about young workers. Youth unemployment is at an all-time high around the world. When you look at Italy, when you look at Spain. And a lot of the benefits are going for the older generation. So we need to make it attractive for the younger workers for mobility. They are the people who are traveling. And they are the people who I think PEP will find ways to attract. So I think the savings motive is something I think will work. And Eastern Europe should definitely benefit. OK. Uh, yeah, a quick, uh there is also one thing that might be useful to remind. I mean, it is not um, the assumption that that public systems are not sustainable is uh, is it can be challenged. I mean, there is a, uh, it, it depends on the political choice that you want to do at the very beginning. Where do you want to invest the savings? Do you want to invest them in collective systems which are also uh, based on solidarity, which are able basically to cover as many people as possible uh, and to guarantee a basis to anyone uh, uh, in the mid-long term? And do you, do you want to nourish them also because they are cost-efficient in their, for example, management costs and uh, in, uh, in, uh, in the um, use uh, uh, of, uh, of the funds themselves that can be done. For example, they can be used to nourish real economy instead of more volatile uh, uh, financial market. And that's one choice. Then you can decide to privilege a privatized and individualized approach, which has a potential. I might be. Uh, <laughs> no, has a potential to increase inequalities enormously, because uh, um, 
privileging uh, an, a, an instrument which is private and which is uh, uh, um, potentially highly accessible to individuals uh, through tax incentives means to drain resources uh, which might be used for someone else in another dimension. Um, and this is something that nowadays uh, is uh, even the AGS uh, is uh, 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 striking as impeaching uh, a sustainable growth. Um, so I really, uh, I'm, we are, we were really surprised when we saw, we knew of course about the, the PEP initiative since a while, we dealt with uh, through the colleagues, but uh, the, uh, the, 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 the context here should be a little bit wider than uh, financial market. The okay. question is, where is DG employment in this? Okay. Okay, so broader points around uh, inequality given tax benefits would inevitably be channeled towards those in formal employment and you know, possibly uh, those who are best placed to make use of a contractual savings <coughs> mechanism. Gisela, any further reaction? or? Well, I heard also uh, uh, something about guarantees and guaranteed uh, money. I think guarantees cost money as well. So we should realize that you can uh, have guarantees in your pension system, and, and we do have that quite a lot. We have a largely defined benefit system, uh, which contains guarantees, uh, which also brings us into trouble nowadays with the low interest rates, because guarantees uh, co then are a costly thing to do. Right. Uh, so, yes, it's nice to have, and as you build it over the years, which we did in the Netherlands, then you can somehow maintain it, although it's challenging today. Uh, but if you start today, then I think it would not be uh, the wisest, might not be the wisest thing okay. to do. Mm -hmm. Because, again, guarantees always cost money. Yeah. Maybe if I could make two very brief comments. Yeah. Uh, uh, quickly, yeah. yes, number one, uh, uh, DG Employment is fully behind this uh, initiative. But, of course, it's, it's one brick in, 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 uh, among a wide range of solutions. It's not the solution in itself, but, but uh, it's, it's part of the solution, and DG Employment is fully behind it. And secondly, of course, uh, Pillar 1 state pensions can always be sustainable. It just depends on your tax rates. Uh, on that note, uh, <laughs> let me take your questions. And could you introduce yourselves uh, when you ask a question, please, straight to the point and uh, not, not a comment, please. Yes. Uh, thank you, Andrei Sulik. I work for the European Investment Bank. Uh, I have, again, I'm sorry, a question to the European Commission. Um, with regards to tax um, could you give us an indication a little bit about the, perhaps you've mentioned it, about the scope, the size of market that you want to create? I mean, there are figures within the impact assessment, but if I'm not mistaken, you always say that sort of the, the trigger investment effect that you will create hinges upon exactly those tax breaks. So what if, as you said, most likely your proposal will be adopted, but the recommendations so the text, the tricky part, will not be changed or will not be taken on board from member states. And of course, perhaps not homogeneously. So to what extent would that impact on your, on your added value estimates? Thank you. Thank you. 
Thomas Schneider, German Federation of Managers. My question also refers to Mr. Ryan from the Commission. Um, in one of the previous uh, Bruegel conferences, I learned that uh, labor mobility across Europe just amounts to 0.12%, which is uh, obviously behind the expectation of the European Commission and the uh, European Union uh, at large. Uh, is the PEP proposal also meant to boost uh, inter-European mo uh, labor mobility, or uh, is it worth the effort and the complexity given the existing rate of inter-European uh, labor mobility? Thank you. Thank you. I also would like to draw attention to something which is in the impact assessment. Uh, in the impact assessment, um, uh, there are uh, um, uh, key performance uh, indicators, uh, which presumably will be used by the time we come to a review, which suggest that you will only be looking at a third pillar, uh, personal pension market, in order to judge whether PEP will or will not be a success and what should be changed. I would like to challenge that, because I think if your perspective is the capital markets union, then basically what you're looking at is how can I get more pension savings, which will turn into more investments in the capital markets union. And in order to judge that, it would be very important to look also at capital-based uh, second pillars. And presently, in the Netherlands, those exist. And in the Netherlands, they already do invest to a very large degree in very many member states. Uh, as a rule of thumb, you can more or less, and I stand to be corrected by uh, Gisela, who will know this as well, but you can more or less assume that it will be around 10% in the Netherlands, 40% rest of Europe, 50% rest of world, where the investments go. Uh, so it, this is something which is really a contribution to savings made uh, in uh, mainly northern member states, which turn into investments also in other member states. And I think that is what the capital market union is about. So when you start looking into this, you need also, when you assess whether your me measure worked, you need to throw the net uh, just a little bit wider. And I would like to add one more thing, if you allow me, on uh, what uh, Gisela said. She cited 35% of assets under management of EORPs in the EU 28 are in the hands of Dutch EORPs. This is correct. After Brexit, this percentage will go to about two-thirds. Thank you. So, okay, so two questions on uh, what are really the objectives of the PEP. Is it labor mobility, is it more savings, or is it retirement provision? And then uh, the question on what are the tax uh, assumptions behind it. Yeah? Uh, so, um, I think in the immediate instance, Stephen, but others do come in. Yeah? Uh, well, first of all, I'm, I'm very gratified that uh, people have been reading our impact assessment because we, 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 we wrote it uh, hoping that it would have some readership, and uh, I'm glad that uh, that is the case. Um, just as, 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 a, as a reminder for those in the room who, 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 uh, who didn't have time to read the impact assessment, so the, the, uh, the currently at the assets under management for personal pension products in all of the EU, and that's, of course, EU 28 as of today, um, uh, count for 700 uh, billion euros. And even in the absence of any kind of PEP, that market is uh, predicted to uh, double 
uh, to, to between now and 2030 to 1,400 uh, billion euros. Now, our calculations were that a, if, if there is a PEP with tax incentives, uh, then we can uh, actually uh, increase that predicted growth uh, by uh, a factor of 100% uh, between here and uh, uh, 2030. Now, a PEP without uh, uh, tax incentives would still have some effect in increasing the, the predicted growth rate in personal pensions, but obviously to a lesser extent, and the extent depends on which member states grant uh, tax incentives, assuming that there would be uh, zero tax incentives, the PEP would still have some impact, but it would be obviously uh, more modest, and, and, and we have not quantified that uh, precisely. Um, just a, a word on the investment rules. Um, we did have the option to lay down investment rules for the PEP, but it, it's something which is already uh, complex, as has been uh, uh, remarked, and we decided not to lay down specific investment rules, but the general prudent person principle should apply. So, of course, it is possible for uh, some, uh, say, PEP savings to be invested outside the EU. And I think that's a normal, prudent thing, uh, a little bit of global uh, diversification. Uh, but um, clearly, uh, uh, we, we do not intend the, the PEP in any way to cannibalize existing uh, occupational pension markets. And we tried very hard uh, to design the PEP in such a way as to ensure that that would not be the case. Hopefully, we succeeded. But people can have opinions about that. My name is uh, Sibylle Reichert. I represent the Dutch pension funds here in Brussels. Um, okay. So um, my, uh, I must say that I was a bit confused when I read pension funds in the EU Capital Markets Union, and then um, I arrive at an event where the PEP is, uh, is the main subject. That's the first thing. Um, and the second thing is... Um, Sorry, it is part of the action plan. Yeah. Yeah, but, um, yeah, but uh, I mean, pension funds for me are occupational pension funds, so they are not PEPs, but uh, this may be uh, an, uh, yeah, a confusement from, from my, my side, but uh, I, I, was, I was confused because I thought that this could also go about how do you promote actually collective, uh, collectively based uh, pension funds and uh, what could member states do in order to incentivize that uh, employers and employees get together or uh, collectivities get together uh, to make sure that uh, those who work also have access to occupational pensions. So that was actually the idea I had when I uh, joined this meeting today. And then my question to the Commission is what, what could the Commission do to, uh, to do that? I, I could I could talk for I could talk for ten minutes about the recent uh, revi revised directive on occupational pensions, but that was not the subject that I was asked to prepare. So. Stasinopoulos, formerly with the European Commission, actually looking at the title of our meeting today is "Pension Funds in the UA European Union Capital Markets." It's something that is being developed very slowly, actually. We don't have the various elements, what the capital market will look like. But if I'm not mistaken, 
one of the basic objective of a capital markets union is to develop no banking financing. Why? Well, because uh, the example is the United States of in the United States, where most of the financing, 70% is done by non-banks. And we have the reverse in Europe. Financing by banks is only 30%. Uh, and then again, if I'm not mistaken, European Union pension funds do not have sufficient assets to cover liabilities. You know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Then what do we expect, let's say, if the capital unions develop and if we develop the non-banking sector providing liquidity and how this is going to help the pension funds, actually? Uh, is the main reason that, because overall, no banking is regulated less than banking. That's, it's a rule throughout the world. Do we expect, let's say, the benefits to be derived by, by that window that the no banking may have in the future? Kurt Geisel, Backbone Consulting in Stuttgart. When Günther Oettinger was the Minister President of the State of Baden-Württemberg 10 years ago, he initiated a legislation that the pension age for civil servants, and in Baden-Württemberg you have 200,000, is not 65, but rather 68 on a voluntary basis. Do you think we should have more flexibility like this all over the European Union? question. To what extent the, the, these products, so the PEP, would lighten, because as you showed the demographic challenges, would lighten the burden on the younger generation, because at the end, the working generation is always paying for the non-working generation. So would, would the PEP change in this respect? Transition to a partial uh, multi-pillar um, system, how, how is this going to work? Uh, we I give, want to um, answer his question yeah, a little okay. bit. Could you switch your microphone off, please? Uh, so you were right, sir, in saying that non-banking financial institutions uh, have been prevalent in U.S., but that's historical. It can't change overnight. Uh, so if you look at stock markets and you look at uh, how big the stock markets were in the 50s, 60s, 70s. An average person in Germany in 2000, 70% of the savings went into bank. An average person in US, 70% went into stock markets. So very, very different institutional features. But when you change it, you also bring risks. So we've seen, I worked in a bank which had the biggest credit market, CDO, CLO, share, and emerging markets in the world. And I saw there are problems also which some parts of Europe didn't have because they were not that much into non-banking finance and the kind of hedge funds or credit derivatives that we spawned. So there are some advantages. I think opening up capital markets is very good. We should look at risks. But I want everyone to look at how the IMF is looking at global financial stability. And they're taking on board a lot of what Marina is saying, a lot of what uh, we hear out there from Stephen and Gisela. So IMF has changed their global financial stability report 
since last September, thanks to Tobias, Adrian, and a lot of finance people going in. Before that, it was macroeconomists. So they say, when we are looking at financial stability, what percent of GDP and employment is also at risk? Earlier, I would just look at, do we have enough funds to cover our liabilities? So growth at risk is the new measure that they look at, and it's worth thinking about things beyond finance, things like youth unemployment, things like inequality, things like social solidarity. And I think the Dutch and the Nordics are good examples. That's my basic contribution on those two questions. Okay. Well, tax rates are <laughs> The only retirement age is EU competence is retirement age of EU citizens. In fact, I'm passionate about abolishing fixed retirement ages. There should be recommended retirement ages. And that's what is linked to conditional life expectancy. Japan, Korea, Costa Rica, Chile, uh, some of the Nordics are making those conditional retirement ages linked to life expectancy. Sorry, can we just finish uh, this? No, no can we? It's sorry, can we, just, uh, can we just finish this round of questions? Well, you and can, then you but I would have an addition to the question we timed today. You should look at the European semester and the encouragement uh, of uh, hiring um, uh, legal retirement ages and work of DG Ample in uh, trying to get effective retirement ages up. So the Commission actually does a lot in this field. All right, uh, did you have a it's basically the same, actually. I mean, uh, the, the semester recommends uh, year after year the, statutory, the raise of the statutory retirement age. And uh, only very recently, the narrative of the country reports, uh, I can witness on uh, the 28 of them, has a little bit changed uh, in uh, putting a little bit more attention on what is the... Uh, effective retirement age, uh, which has a totally different story behind uh, and which uh, depends uh, on structural changes which take a lot, while imposing a different state, uh, statutory retirement age on member states uh, can be done uh, overnight, uh, uh, prolonging actual working lives. Uh, uh, is something which is under discourse since ages uh, and hasn't really achieved uh, any substantial result yet. So there is the gap, the, the, there is a, there is a, a coast uh, in this gap, uh, which is at the advantage of the sustainability of public finances, of course, but which is borne by uh, 50 plus, uh, which are which have been for a long while uh, the, 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 the biggest rate of uh, long-term unemployed. Before you add another, uh... Yes, and there were, there were some other questions. Uh, I mean, I mean on, on labor mobility, we, we, we certainly don't imagine that there is somebody who receives a job offer in another member state and who decides to refuse the job offer because, because of, of pension-related issues. Uh, at least I haven't heard of any such example. But, I mean, labor mobility, we need to work on improving it, and this is just one small piece in the jigsaw puzzle of, of factors that, 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 we, that we want to uh, facilitate labor mobility. But I just wanted to come back to a question about um, underfunding of, 
of uh, pension funds. Now, uh, and, and this is relevant on the occupational side. Now, the, the, uh, the occupational pension funds, of course, underfunding is only an issue if they are uh, defined uh, benefit or hybrid. If they're defined contribution, there is no underfunding is not a factor. And whether the, um, the pension fund is underfunded or not depends essentially on what uh, discount rate you use to discount the liabilities. And uh, this is not harmonized at European level, but uh, AOPA, the organization I mentioned before, does do stress testing. And it, it does stress testing of uh, uh, EU occupational pension funds using a quite, uh, a quite strict low discount rate, which is lower than the rates currently used in some, in some member states. And it, 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 it published its latest results in uh, December, which showed that indeed the sector as a whole is underfunded, but this is using the discount rate, the tough, strict discount rate of, of AOPA, use a higher discount rate, which some national authorities use, it's less uh, underfunded. So, so it really depends on, on the input measures that you use. Yeah, a very recognizable picture, and I think uh, the Dutch Central Bank is one of the most prudent supervisors, I'm afraid, using a very uh, strict uh, discount rate, yeah. which, uh, by, by the way, results to, uh, I think we are just about, on average, the Dutch uh, pension funds are just about funded. Of course, there are, there are differences, but uh, the sector as a whole is just about funded today. So it's not that bad. Maybe I can also go into the question of Mr. Reichert about uh, occupational pension schemes combined to personal uh, pensions. Uh, um, I think the history in the Netherlands is one which is very much related to labor market dynamics. Yeah? In the past, everybody used to work at the same employer for the whole working life. And if you changed employer, at least you stayed in the same occupation. So in the Netherlands, the pension funds are usually organized by type of business which means you are always in the same type of pension scheme. Today, people don't stay at employers very long, and I guess that's a European movement. Yes, people stay one, two, three years at an employer, and then they change, which means that you go from one pension fund to another, which makes it less logical to have, if you now would set up the system, to go into that, we are not there, we have a system which, which works fine, but if you would set up a system today, which is a situation in many other European countries, uh, you, you could ask whether or not it makes sense. If you have people moving to different pension funds, your homogeneity of the group, and therefore also the questions related to solidarity, are, are becoming very difficult. And solidarity is a good thing, but it becomes very complex if you have a changing group of people all the time. Mm -hmm. So for me, if you would start to set up more pension savings, I'm not sure whether occupational pensions, as we have today in the Netherlands, would be the best example. I would like to add to what Gisela said. Heterogeneity of consumers and labor forces is very important, and this goes back again to the kind of trade federations we have. They're not the same as what we saw in the 60s and 70s. And I would like to place on record, with due apologies to Stephen, that there's a lot of learning that IOPA could do by looking at what the Dutch have done over the last 20 years through FTK, PVK, and APK kind of different versions of lights and how they've modulated in terms of understanding the sensitivities of not just discount rates, but also the stochastic discount factors at longer horizons. So I would encourage IOPA if they could kind of refer to some of those, it would just enhance. Mm -hmm.
may be a quite different question. When I entered the room, I had in my head Capital Markets Union, which does not exist. Okay, so the question for me to be answered this afternoon was in what way um, pension funds that are, as we have heard extensively, very national-based, can help or could help to bring about the capital markets union. What kind of measures, what kind of mindset of governments, what kind of mindset of pension funds should be put in place or should develop in order to enrich the capital markets union? That's the question I would like to any last questions? Um, if not, let me hand it back. So I apologize if the capital markets aspect has not been central enough to this discussion, but uh, there is a topic for another seminar. Um, maybe can I refocus the question, the uh, national um, limits on uh, foreign allocations. Um, is this under review? There's a 30% of floor on uh, foreign allocations, uh, is that something the um, Commission would, would reconsider in terms of the domestic versus foreign allocation? Sorry, it's a 30% uh, um, limit on the national allocation of pension funds. Is that something that's to be reopened? Uh, we had a publication here in Bruegel last year that looked at uh, the extent to which pension funds are a factor in financial integration, and it turns out, as you say, that it's quite limited. Uh, I, I think maybe there's some misunderstanding here. I mean, one of the fundamental uh, freedoms of the single market is free movement of capital, and any uh, rule, national rule on pension funds, which obliged a certain percentage to be invested in the home member state is manifestly, blatantly illegal, and will be immediate, Im illegal, and it will be immediately followed by, by a commission, uh, commission uh, infringement proceedings. But there are no member states uh, who have such manifest uh, 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 restrictions. Um, what, what tends to be more the case is uh, rules about asset categories uh, with regard to, for example, uh, equities, unlisted equities, and uh, obligations to, uh, to uh, hold um, a certain uh, percentage of uh, assets in fixed income, for example. Now, the, the recently revised uh, directive uh, on occupational pension funds actually um, uh, uh, reduced uh, the right of member states to impose uh, such limits. What they can do, what they can do uh, legally, is to have uh, restrictions on investments outside the European Economic Area. But that must also be in compatibility with uh, commitments they have made in the OECD, which has investment codes as well. So, so when we're not talking about uh, crude uh, uh, national restrictions. Uh, we, are, we are talking about uh, non-regulatory factors, essentially. Uh, home bias, uh, bias in home sovereigns, uh, for example. Uh, which in many cases will not give the necessary return to provide an adequate pension to, to, to the pension holder, to, to, the, uh, to the saver. So, so we are talking here about uh, working on removing non-regulatory factors okay. uh, which limit, uh, limit uh, cross-border investment. And that's one of the things the capital markets union is about. So decreasing home bias as 
products become more fluid and interchangeable. But he Last asked a very good question on capital market union. My limited experience as a finance professor, I see when I look at APG, PGGM, ATP, Nodges Bank, etc., their global investments are fostering not just within EU, but within the rest of the world, very good knowledge fertilization, asset allocation, and what Stephen talked about is pushing the boundaries into what fixed income do we invest in? If 95% of government bonds are giving us negative half a percent to plus half a percent, how eligible is it in the investment opportunity set? 30 years ago, I would say it is, but today for liabilities, fixed income needs to look at emerging markets, high yield, credit, but with a lot of risk management. Not every pension plan can do it, but I think European pension plans are fostering capital markets union when I look at the asset allocation.